Welcome to City on a Hill Church, Forest Hills podcast. We exist to lead people to love, trust, and follow Jesus in everyday life. We're glad you're here, and thanks for listening. More information on the life and mission of City on a Hill Church can be found at coahforesthills.org. So this morning, uh, if I haven't met you, uh, I would love to meet you. However, I'm going to have to run out right as the service is ending. I, I need to go to uh, City on Hill, Brookline, to preach for Pastor Aaron. Uh, his parents both have cancer, and so he had to go out of town unexpectedly uh, to be with them, to care for them down in North Carolina. So you can be praying for Aaron. He's had a hard year. Um, as some of you have heard of this. He had uh, some stuff at the beginning of the year with his own health, and then had to do three months of grand jury duty, which is eight to four every day. Uh, and then his, both his parents have cancer. And so he's just had a hard, hard year. So be praying for them. And I'm glad that I'm able to go serve and uh, care for their body today. Uh, it's good to be back with you this morning. I missed all of you last week. I went down to Alabama, ate way too much food, but I'm getting back on the train this week. And so uh, thank you to Tyler Speck, who preached last week and uh, taught us through the end of, of uh, John chapter six. Uh, and so this morning we're turning to John chapter chapter seven. Um, and I don't know about you, but it feels like the more information that we receive, the dumber we get as a society. I don't think the internet is helping. Um, I think the internet has failed us. We thought that it was, it was an information problem. It's not an information problem. Um, and it seems that the internet is really just a tool for us to argue about anything. And back in 2015, uh, the internet exploded over a dress. And there may be a picture of this dress that pops up on the screen. If not, you can probably imagine this dress. You just imagine the dress. Um, if you remember 2015 on the internet, what color was the dress? Was it black and blue or was it yellow and gold? Who was on the black and blue train who remembers this? I got one person. How many of you were on the, the white and yellow or white and gold train? Okay, this was a big argument on the internet if you're on the internet at this time, this big debate. People went back and forth. Entire family split over this uh, the idea of what color was the dress. And there were two realities about this dress, two realities. Number one, that everyone had an opinion. If you were on Facebook at that time, you had an opinion, a very strong opinion about the color of that dress. And secondly, the dress had an original color. There was a right answer. And I'm sorry for those of you who were team white and yellow, it was black and blue. The originator of the dress, the person who took the picture said it was black and blue. There was an optical illusion in the way that you see color, which would determine what you actually saw. But no matter what you saw, no matter your opinion, there was a right answer. And as we turn to John and John chapter seven, it is clear that everyone in the gospel of John has an opinion about Jesus. Everyone has an opinion. There, there, there's no middle ground with Jesus. And as we get to the end of chapter six, we see that Jesus is making it more and more clear that you're gonna have to make a decision about Jesus. You're gonna have to make a decision about who he is. And he actually laid out some of his harshest words yet. And we see that thousands of people who've been coming for signs and coming for wonders into believing Jesus because the commands and the demands of Jesus were just too Hard. He said some strange words such as eat my flesh and drink my blood. And this would have been astounding for the hearers to hear this. He wasn't talking about his literal flesh and his literal blood. They, they misunderstood what he was talking about, but he was saying that if they wanted real life, they had to feast on him. That the only way to receive life is to feast on Christ. And, and he demanded a response and many walked away. And just like that, everyone in this room this morning has made a decision or a judgment on Jesus. 
You have an opinion about Jesus one way or the other, but the question is, is have you made the right judgment of Jesus? And just like that dress had a right color, there is a right answer. Jesus has a real identity and he can't be both. He's either God or he's not. He's either savior or he's not. He's either telling the truth or he's lying. There is no middle ground. Now you're welcome to have an opinion. This is America. You can believe what you want to believe. You can believe something about Jesus that he didn't claim to be. But the laws of logic tell us this. He can't be both. He, he can't be good or not. He can't be one thing for you and something else for someone else. He can't just be good news for one person and not for someone else. He's either good news or he's not. And in John chapter 7, Jesus invites you and I to make that judgment. Verse 24, it says, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Judge with right judgment. Make a judgment about Jesus. Make a determination. And what Jesus is inviting you to do is to look at him, to consider him, to, to think about him and roll over in your mind, is Jesus who he said he is? Did Jesus do what he said he would do? Because this is the greatest choice you could ever consider. Blaise Pascal was, was a ma famous mathematician, but he was also a great Christian theologian. And there's something called Pascal's Wager, and I don't have time to unpack all of this, but a very simplified version of Pascal's Wager is this, is that it's a 50-50 chance whether God exists or not. It's a coin flip. God either exists or God doesn't exist. But what Pascal said is he said that if God doesn't exist, then the stakes of, of not believing in him versus believing in him are kind of nothing. It's not, it's not a big deal. If God doesn't exist and you choose to believe in him, you honestly don't lose a whole lot. But if you don't believe in him and he doesn't exist, you don't gain anything either. But if God does exist, you stand to gain everything or lose everything. We have to consider whether Jesus' words are true or not. And in John 7, we see three responses that people make to Jesus. And each one of us likely fall into one of these categories. And the first response to Jesus is dismissal. You can simply dismiss Jesus and his claims. You're not angry at Jesus. You're not mad at Jesus. You just don't believe it. You just dismiss it. It says in verse one, after this, Jesus went about in Galilee. So Jesus is, is going about in Galilee after the events of chapter six because he would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. They were ready to kill Jesus over the words that he said. He had said some really hard things. And he's, it says that he went about, and this is a term that the, the typical Jewish teacher or rabbi, his, it was a term for his ministry. He would go from town to town and place to place and he would teach the word. And we see from verse two, because it was at the Feast of the Booths that this was likely over a six-month period that Jesus was going around Galilee. And to be going around Galilee would be to be going about in anonymity, in obscurity. Jesus is in the middle of nowhere. There's hardly anybody there and he's teaching. And his brothers, they get a wind of this, his physical brothers... And they're like, get, get, get out of here. Get out of our small little town and go back to Judea. Go back to Jerusalem. Go back to the big city. It says in verse three, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. They're thinking about Jesus, that he has just ran everybody off with the whole eat my flesh and drink my blood thing. I mean, if a politician said that, you'd be like, you tanked your numbers, it's over. All the political advisors would be saying, you gotta get back out there and you gotta do some goodwill for the people. Go back to what made you successful. 
Go back to what made you famous, Jesus. You were out there turning water into wine. Everybody loved that miracle. Uh, You're out there raising people up and making the lame walk. Uh, Go do that. That's what made you popular. Go back into the public square and show everybody that you are somebody. And we get that in Boston. You didn't move to Boston to be lazy. You, You didn't move to Boston because you wanted an easier life. It snows here a lot. We have to shovel. But you came here because you wanted a better opportunity for your life. You came here to go to a better school. You came here to get into the best program. You came here for an opportunity. And this would be like saying to someone who's a a doctor in a small town in West Virginia, and there's nothing wrong with that to be clear. Why are you practicing medicine here when you can go to Boston and practice medicine in the best medical community in the world? Why wouldn't you do that? They're wondering why Jesus is doing things like this, not doing the things the way that they would do them. And we see in verse five, the reason for not even his brothers believed in him. They didn't believe in Jesus because they had dismissed Jesus and the way that Jesus came to do ministry. Now to give his brothers a little bit of credit, I don't know that I would want to follow my brother either. I'm an older brother. I don't have to worry about that. But, you know, but if you are a younger sibling, imagine your older brother coming to you and saying, hey, not only am I your older brother, I'm also God. Okay? That's a hard pill to swallow. It's a hard pill to swallow if your brother were to walk into your room and says, my father says that you should follow me. Say, wait, wait, we got the same dad. What are you talking about? No, no, my earthly father. Not my earthly father, my heavenly father. They dismissed Jesus because they didn't understand who Jesus was or what he came to do. And often when we dismiss Jesus, we have a misunderstanding of Jesus's place in our lives. Because what we often want to do is we want to look at Jesus on our terms. We place Jesus into a box of our making. And if Jesus doesn't fit our lives, we tend to dismiss him. And they looked at Jesus and said, you're not living up to our ideas of what we think you should be doing in our lives, so we are not going to follow you. And just like that, you and I can dismiss Jesus when he doesn't live up to your idea of what you want him to be. And we can make demands of Jesus, reasons that we'll follow him, that he never promised to give us. We'll say, Jesus, I'll follow you if you give me a trouble-free life. I'll promise you to follow you if you you promise to give me a a, a wonderful relationship or if you give me perfect kids or money or success. I'll follow you if, Jesus. And so verses three and four are his brothers saying, Jesus, if you'll prove to us that you'll be the God that we want, if you'll show us that you can do miracles, we'll follow you. They had no problem believing Jesus was a miracle worker. Do something big and we'll believe. Go, go to the center of my life, what I want the most, and do a miracle there. If you give me what I want most and keep me from what I fear most, I'll believe you. If you give me a spouse, if you give me a child, if you give me a job, if you free me from this addiction, then I'll believe. If you never take away the things that I love most, you've got a deal, Jesus. Do you see how backwards that is? I'll follow you if you do what I want you to do. You see how that's putting Jesus in our box, believing on our terms, and we just dismiss Jesus, not based on the reality of who he is, but what we want from him. And the next statement gets at why you and I do this. Verse six, Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. What does Jesus mean by that? The word time there is the Greek word kairos, which means 
a particular time or the right time. I don't know if you're one of those people who tends to say the, wrong, the right thing at the wrong time. Uh, I've been known to do that. Um, it's about the right time. Jesus is saying it's not the right time for me to go to Jerusalem. It's not the right time for me to make myself known. It's not the right time for me to do this because I'm submitted to the Father. And one day I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to go there not to, to be famous, but I'm going to go there to go to a cross, not of his own will, but to glorify God. But then he also says, it is always your time. What did Jesus mean by telling his brothers and us, it is always your time? It's his way of looking at them and saying, it's always your time because your life is always about you. It's not about the Father's business. It's about what you want out of life. He's telling them and, and you and I that you're consumed with yourself, that you order life based on your agenda and priorities and needs, and that we very rarely tend to stop and consider is what I'm doing honoring God. He's basically saying, you guys do what you want when you want to do it. And he goes a little further in verse seven. And again, Jesus is just making it harder. He says, the world cannot hate you because it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. In other words, the world has no reason to hate you because you're just like it. It stings. But yet they hate Jesus because he loves and submits to the father, whether it fits the cultural moment or not. There's never been a moment in human history where Jesus' ethic for how you and I are called to live fits the culture. Doesn't matter if it was 30 AD, it doesn't matter if it was 1950 or 1850 or 2024, there's never been a moment where our culture perfectly lines up with the scriptures and you and I are called to live countercultural lives. This is one reason that celebrating Black History Month is important for us as a church because this is wrapped up in the idea that people are made in the image of God. And we have a very long history in our country that black and brown people have not been treated as people made in the image of God. And at one point, that was a very culturally normal thing to do. We are called to live counter-cultural lives. And the jarring question for you and I is, does the world have any reason to hate you? Now, I'm not saying go out of your way. I'm not saying be a jerk. In fact, stay off Facebook. Don't type in all caps. Don't be that person. Don't give the world a reason to hate you, but does the world have any reason to hate you? Are you any different from the world when we can dismiss Jesus to the point that we look just like the culture and nothing like him? Have you dismissed Jesus? Have you dismissed Jesus based on ideas about who he is that he never claimed to be? We can make him like verse 12 says, into just simply a good man, but he came to be God and savior. So we can dismiss Jesus, but secondly, we can deny Jesus. There's an outright denial of Jesus. This tends to be a little more in your face that we dislike what Jesus is telling us. His brothers, we see in verse eight, they go ahead. He tells them, you go to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast for my time has not yet fully come. Verse nine, after saying this, he remained in Galilee. But verse 10, after his brothers had gone to the feast, then he also went up, not public, publicly, but in private. Jesus eventually does go to the feast. Now, is he changing his mind? Did he think, man, you know, my brother's had a point. I'm out here talking to nobody. I could go into the city center. No, he, he's not changing his mind, but he's only going to do what God wants him to do. 
And it shows the, the humility of Jesus and the purpose of Jesus, what he's coming to do, that he's not trying to get attention, but he has a purpose and he wants to teach them something about the feast. If you look at verse 14, it says, about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. This was the Feast of Booths. And just a little bit about the Feast of Booths. It was the most popular of three annual pilgrimages that the people of Israel would take to Jerusalem. Everybody, everybody would go up to Jerusalem, up on the mountain, up to the city, and they would celebrate. And they would go each year and remember that at one point, God's people wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. For 40 years between Egypt and the Promised Land, they wandered about in the wilderness and they lived in booths or tents. Sometimes this is called the Feast of the Tabernacles, another way to think of this. And they would reenact this by just basically having one big camping trip. Everybody from everywhere would bring their tents and they'd all camp together and they'd sing and laugh and eat together. And they would remember how God had provided for his people for 40 years as a picture that God would provide for them forever. And so Jesus goes at the height of the festival when the most people would be there and he begins teaching them. Now, this was a, a common practice of Jewish teachers at the time. They would go into a crowd or go into the temple and they would get up and begin teaching and crowds would begin to form around them. People would draw to these different teachers and we see verse 15, that the Jews therefore marveled saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? The people marvel because this uneducated man, this carpenter from Galilee gets up and begins to speak to them in ways that they could never comprehend, captivating them, marveling at what he had to say. And the word literally for someone who has no learning is that he doesn't know his letters. He, he, he didn't go to the right school. He didn't go to the right college. He didn't get the rabbinical teaching like the others. And, and we see, in fact, there are very, a lot of famous people successful people who didn't go to college or dropped out of college. Both Steve Jobs and Bill Gates, so whatever computer you use, they both dropped out of college. And, and this would be the equivalent of someone walking into your laboratory, if you're in a lab, never having taken a biology class, being able to look at a virus and diagnose what it is by just looking. This would be the equivalent of someone who's never sold anything in their life, walking into your sales room and giving you a platform and giving you a, a way to make sales go up by 30%. They're blo he's blowing their mind. And in verse 16, we see the reason why he could teach with such authority. He answered them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. It's not my own teaching. It's, it's not my own authority. He, he's not making this up as he goes. He's not just taking the teaching of someone else and, and telling them what they said. Now, the context here is that this is often what happens. Often what would happen is that a rabbi of the time would take the teachings of other rabbis of the past and just sort of parrot them and just repeat them and say them again and again and again. And so, and so often it was a way to bolster your credibility before others. So you'd say, well, you know, Rabbi Eleazar or, or Elijah or Gamaliel or Halil or Shammai, this is what they said about the Sabbath. This is what Shammai said about the afterlife. This is what so-and-so said about the Messiah. And people would go, oh man, this guy knows his stuff. I mean, he knows what all these prophets and rabbis of the past have said. And look, there's no harm in quoting other people. I, I do it all the time. It's good practice, but it can get you in trouble. 
In fact, if you look at the history of the Catholic Church, this is exactly what happened. They basically played a big, giant game of theological telephone. I don't know if you ever played that game as a kid, where you put a line of people together, and you start at one end and give someone a message, and they had to whisper it in the ear of the next person, and then the next person. And by the time at the end of it, it was something about a banana and a man on a corner. Like, you didn't know what was going on. Completely got messed up. And, and that's often what happened. And a big part of the Reformation was actually Martin Luther and other reformers saying, back to the source. Back, back to the Bible. And what Jesus is claiming here is I didn't get my theology, I didn't get my teaching from a line of rabbis. I got it directly from the Father. He's saying that he's the one who can claim ultimate authority, the one who can demand your whole life, who can demand that you change, and you deny all others for knowing him. And he says in verse 6, 17 that if you're a humble person, you'll get that. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking of my own authority. You'll truly see that he's Jesus. If they saw and read the promises, not trying to bend the Bible into, into something that it's not, not trying to make it their own, they would see Jesus. And in verse 18, we see that this is all about who's getting authority and glory. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him, there is no falsehood. You can either deny yourself or deny Jesus. One or the other. To, to, to follow Jesus, you have to deny yourself. And the reason we often don't follow Jesus is that we don't want to deny ourselves. And he challenges them. They're ready to kill him. Verse 19, has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law. The very law that you read, the very thing that you're, you're basing your entire life on is the standard to help you see the Messiah and you can't see the Messiah staring you in the face. And they deny Jesus and they're ready to kill him. So why, why might you and I deny Jesus? Why might you and I deny his claims? One reason is that they might offend you. Jesus' claims are offensive. I mean, no, no lie. At the end of uh, chapter six, where he says, you know, eat my flesh and drink my blood, every Jew is horrified when they hear that. His, his claims are offensive. The idea that you can't be a good enough person to please God offends us. The idea that you might have to change something or give something up can feel offensive. It, it often offends us because we want to be the ones who are the authority in our lives. We want to receive the glory it's also sometimes it just confuses us. We don't understand. We don't understand why we're being asked something. Verse 20, they're like, the crowd answers, you have a demon. Who's seeking to kill you? You know, Amy and I got to teach at a, a parenting conference yesterday and we were talking about boundaries. And, and one of the ideas about boundaries is that obedience often precedes understanding. That we often have to, as children, obey before we understand the reason to obey. Because what is the number one question that children ask? Anybody, why? Why do I have to do that? Why can't I snort pixie sticks? Why can't I watch a movie at 2 a.m.? Why can't I eat candy for breakfast? They don't know. We just know it's bad for them. In the same way, it can be hard for us to understand and trust God's commands. Why does it matter who I sleep with? Why does it matter how I use my money? Why does it matter how, if I'm honest or not? Why does it matter where I live and what I do? And it's hard to trust Jesus, but here's what we have to understand, that if he is good, that everything he asks of you is ultimately for your good. If, he wants the one, if he's the one who created you, everything he's asking of you is to help you flourish and thrive. 
And so in verses 21 through 24, they don't understand what Jesus is doing. And he answers, I did one work and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. You're willing to break it if it's this what it takes. If on the Sabbath, a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken. Are you angry with me because on the Sabbath, I made a man's whole body well? Do you not understand that maybe what you don't understand is actually me doing something greater? That they couldn't see that Jesus' heart was to heal their whole body by asking them to trust something they didn't quite understand. What if your greatest offense at the gospel is actually what's preventing you from true joy in God? What if that one thing that is, 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 that's offensive to you, that one thing that you really struggle with is what is keeping you from flourishing? It's like if you ever were to confront someone who's an addict, and my best friend growing up has, has struggled with addiction his entire life, and I remember having to have an intervention with him and me telling him that he's got to finally kick it was the most offensive thing that I could tell him in that moment, but yet I wanted his good. Trusting God's ways are good, even when we don't like them, we need to see that he's good and we can trust him. And the things that are confusing, I, I don't know why certain things are the way they are. I don't know, honestly, why certain commands are given to us in the scriptures. I don't know why certain things only happen certain ways. I don't understand why certain people get healed and others don't. I don't understand why some relationships get better and some don't. I don't understand why some desires can't be met in a godly way, but I do know that Jesus promises he will make you whole. And I wanna challenge you. If you're someone who struggles and you just want to deny the, the Bible and deny what Jesus says, is just to come to the Bible with a posture of humility. Come to the Bible with submission, not, not trying to flip the Bible around and make it mean what you want it to mean, because we all bring our cultures. We bring our, our preconceived ideas of what's good and we impose them on the scriptures. But come open-handed and say, what your word says, I will trust. And here's why you can come to Jesus this way is despite your dismissal, despite your denial, despite your doubt, Jesus came to give his life for you. Verse 32, the Pharisees are upset. They heard the crowd muttering these things about him, that they're following him. And the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him, which by the way, the chief priests and the Pharisees were on far opposite ends of the spectrum. They hated each other, but they found a common enemy in Jesus. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me and where I am, you cannot come. Jesus is talking about going to the cross to pay for sinners who dismissed and denied him. He's talking about going to the cross for people who put him on the cross. And he's talking about going to be with the father to make all things right. We, we can trust him. Who does, who does that? A God who's worthy of our praise. See, lastly, the proper response to Jesus is devotion. 
We see in verse 25 that some of the people of Jerusalem are, are trying to really wrestle with who Jesus is. They said, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? He seems like a pretty great guy. We don't get what the big deal is. He seems wonderful. Verse 26, they're thinking, you know, here he is speaking openly and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? They're wrestling with the identity of Jesus. And then we see down in verse 31 that many of the people believed in him. Many people who move from doubt and dismissal and denial are now devoted to Jesus. And so what moves a person from dismissal and denial to devotion? Three things have to happen. Number one is Jesus has to expose you. This entire passage is about Jesus showing your, you your heart. He is showing you your heart that you're a lot like Jesus's brothers. That life has been all about you and you've been trying to kind of fit Jesus in on the margins. That you're a lot like the crowd, that you and I are prideful and we want to be the ones to run our own lives. That you and I are a lot like the seekers here in verses 25 through 31 who think that Jesus is from Bethlehem, but he's actually from God, verse 28. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me uh, is, is true and him you do not know. I know him for I come from him and he sent me. The idea that Jesus is not just an option among many, but if he is God, he's the only, our only hope. That we're a lot like the deniers who are actually the lawbreakers. You and I have broken God's law and we need a savior. And also we're a lot like the invalid man who Jesus claimed to make whole. The greatest gift that you can be given is to be shown that you need Jesus. What is God trying to expose in you right now? Is he trying to expose your reliance on yourself? Is he trying to expose your apathy? Is he trying to expose that you've had the, the wrong idea that you've been trying to be in control? What is God trying to expose in you? Secondly, Jesus has to astonish you. If you look at the end of verse 31, it said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? They're blown away by Jesus. They're captivated by Jesus. This is a rhetorical question. They're basically saying he has to be the Messiah because no one can do anything greater than this. Do you want to be astonished by Jesus? Do you want to truly be blown away by Jesus? He invites you to sit with him for a little while. The spiritual rhythms we talk about at City on a Hill are designed to help you love Jesus more. They're not boxes to check off. We talk about reading your Bible or prayer. You know, they're, they're practices to draw your heart to Jesus. And as you read the Bible and as you pray, I want to invite you to this. Don't rush through it as you read the Bible. Actually take some time to sit with the Lord. Dwell on it. Sit on it. And when you read it, let the truth sit on your soul. Let it fill your heart until you believe in it. So we're actually going to practice this right now. We're not just going to talk about it. So there's going to be a verse on the screen here in just a second. And we're going to practice reading this verse together. I'm going to read it out loud. And I just want to give you a minute to let that sit on your soul. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I want you to just take a minute quietly and close your eyes if you need to and put your hands up as a sign of humility and submission and just sit there and let that word sit on your soul for a minute. Think about what it means that you were a sinner and he died for you. That he loved you in this way. Just sit with that for a minute.
I would encourage you to make that a practice because as you do, you begin to really believe the truths that God's word tells you. I want you to be astonished at Jesus. The third key to devotion is that Jesus has to become the center of your life. How did Peter respond at the end of, of chapter six? In verse 68, he says, where else would we go? I have nothing but you. What were the Jews hoping for in the Feast of Booths? They were hoping that one day God would come and dwell among them and make things right and get right into the middle of their lives. And that's what Jesus has done. Jesus has come and got down in the middle of our mess. He, he didn't just yell out good news from afar. He came down to bring good news, to live, to die on the cross for your sins and to raise again. And when Jesus comes into your life, he comes right into the middle of your life and he becomes everything. So this morning, consider, have you judged Jesus rightly? Are you astonished by Jesus? Is he your everything? Let's pray.